There's no one that's female. I mean, why in the hell would I think that I can be successful? Women are not making it to the top of any profession. So it's a very male-dominated environment. We do exist in this society where women in entertainment are discarded. There are women over 40 making pop music, but you won't hear them on commercial radio. And this is why conversation between women and music has never been more important. Welcome to Control, the podcast where we speak to game changers, change makers, and pioneers working in the music industry. I'm Chelsea Wilson, your host, and my guest in this episode is the extraordinary, multidisciplined, multi award winning music theatre star, jazz vocalist, violinist, and entrepreneur, Femme Belling. Born in Johannesburg in South Africa in a musical family, Femme trained as a ballerina but found her footing in music theatre, becoming a leading lady in London's West End. She's won five Vita Awards, which is the South African equivalent of the Tonys, for those who didn't know, including Best Female Lead in a Musical for her roles in Cats and Little Shop of Horrors, and was nominated for a Green Room Award for her performance as Liza Minnelli in The Boy from Oz. She's performed for the Queen at the Royal Variety Show, sang at Nelson Mandela's funeral, and even performed the NRL halftime at the MCG. Moving to Australia, Femme became immersed in the jazz scene and has released two solo albums. She was nominated at the Australian Women in Music Awards for Excellence in Music and shares an ARIA nomination for her work with the Public Opinion Afro Orchestra. During Melbourne's extended COVID-19 lockdown, she created a new music venue called The Bandwagon with her partner and technical director, Casey McRae. In this conversation, we chat about her career in the theatre, her superfans, burnout, her film role in Mr Bones and so much more. Femme is fiercely talented, whip-smart and hilarious and an incredible friend, so I was thrilled to have her on the podcast. So this is Femme Belling in Control. Femme Belling, welcome to the Control Podcast. Chelsea, it is awesome to be here. So thrilled to have your company and I also wanted to say a huge thank you to you for being such an amazing friend and a rock through this crazy last almost two years now. You've been my five kilometer radius walking buddy. We've had so many great conversations. It was so hard to think of exactly what to ask you about on the podcast. (laughs) I love that this particular podcast is going to be allowing people an insight into our daily whinge and our daily inspirations and our daily <laughs> amazingness this is pretty much what we do on our uh, two hours out of out of the house allowance <laughs> so many things i'd love to chat about but if we can i'd really like to go back to the start of your career you grew up in south africa in a musical family you're really well known for your work in music theater and as a jazz artist but a lot of people don't know that you're actually a trained ballerina Can you tell us about that time in your life? So we had a performing arts workshop in South Africa at the time. It was the only thing like it in South Africa. So I just need to take you back a little further 
than me being able to step onto stage. Living in a completely divided country where being a white human in South Africa at the time meant that I had every opportunity available to me versus my black or colored counterparts. There was this performing arts workshop that tried not to see color. And so it was this little blob of rainbow nation, as they call it. However, that blob existed in a world of apartheid, which basically means separateness, aparthood. And as we know, there were entire laws against the mingling, the making, the creating of arts between white, black, and colored people. And there is a differentiation in South Africa between black and colored as well, which um, doesn't extend into the rest of the world. So um, they are two very different people. They had two very different uh, sets of privileges or and oppressions. So, and I went to the performing arts workshop, which was run by an amazing human called Jeff Corey. And I need him to enter into this because he is the reason I do all of these things the way I do it. He was a guy who wanted to create this world like fame, where you not only came to this performing arts workshop and you did ballet, but all the dancers had to learn an instrument mm -hmm. or how to sing, or all the drama students had to learn how to dance and hold a tune, so that when they went out into the, into the world with their major, they were not isolated. And I can hands up say that it is truly him and his vision that has allowed me to be so versatile in my career. So I started at Performing Arts Workshop doing ballet, doing tap, doing singing, doing violin, doing piano, doing drama, and doing uh, what I suppose you could call it the technical side of things, understanding how to put on a show when I was eight. Eight. And it was just part of the court. Yeah, it was wow. that was when you were eight. And it wasn't it wasn't one of those pushy places where you were, it was, hey, you know, you want to put on a little dance concert? Let's figure out how we do the lighting. And at eight years old, you start to understand how that all works. And you want to back in track to sing that song? Let's go into the studio and see how that's done too. And I remember coming out of there as a teenager, young teenager knowing so much and being I wanted to do it all and I I tell you that is where the magic came from it's not just about focusing in on one particular thing how many times have people turned around to me and said god you know I wish I'd continued with my piano or I wish I'd continued singing or I wish I had taken dance classes and I came out of there with this love for mm -hmm. everything and this hunger like you couldn't keep me still I was, and when Paul closed, Performing Arts Workshop closed, uh, Jeff went over to to New York. We just went our separate ways, and I I needed to continue. So I did ballet class with an incredible ballet teacher after school. I did violin lessons. I did singing lessons. I did drama lessons. I did tap lessons, all extracurricular because I wanted to keep that going. So I then became really good at ballet like I had this am amazing facility I could like get my legs around my ears and and all of that <laughs> and I was getting really good results in exams and and you know what happens when teachers see you excel in certain things they push you and so suddenly I was 
being pushed into a world of, and I say push in both ways, being pushed because I wanted to do it and I was showing facility and because that world, that is what is required. And I ended up studying ballet full time. Yeah, like proper, proper Mm -hmm. ballet. Is there any learnings from that time studying ballet that has stayed with you throughout your life? You have to have a lot of discipline for that art form. You do have to have a lot of discipline for that art form. I had a lot of natural facility towards ballet. Interestingly, my work ethic comes from juggling everything, not necessarily what I learned in ballet. But what I did take away from ballet was a deeper understanding of technique. If you delve deeper into something and understand why your leg can do that or why you have the momentum to pirouette or whiz around and you're like, oh, I get that, that can translate into anything. That can translate into voice control. That can translate into, I don't know, running your own business. That can translate into understanding how other people work. And that is a big thing that I took with me. I struggled with my weight. You know, I was a bit of a chubby ballerina and um, I feel like that catapulted me out of ballet and into other worlds also that thing of you're up every morning stretching doing strengthening your feet body conditioning and all I wanted to do was go to jazz clubs and listen to music and you know get on the beers and drink and that was that was not what was required for a career in ballet and I remember my um repertoire at the time the packed ballet company which was the south africa's professional ballet company i was there and she said she said to me look the musical next door is uh is auditioning to oklahoma and it, you know, it was one of those art centers where you had opera and drama you know drama south africa opera south africa and and we were doing the ballet and they said they're doing the musical they're doing oklahoma and they need some dancers for the dream ballet in the middle um we really think you should go and audition because you know, you don't really fit the mold of a ballerina. And so I was like, fine. And, uh, you know, I was all of 17. I joined the company really early. And uh, and then I went over and I knew them all because they knew my dad. And they were like, so, Femme, can you sing? I was like, oh, please. I was so obnoxious. And, yeah, and so I, there I was in my tutu and pink stockings and point shoes with my <laughs> bun on my head auditioning for Oklahoma and they said, you know, what what could you sing? It's absolutely fine if you just want to sing, um, you know, uh, Happy Birthday. And I was like, I won't, will not be singing Happy Birthday. Uh, you know, well, let's sing a song from from Oklahoma and let's go for it. And I was like, chicks and ducks and geese, better scurry. When I, and they were like, well, and I, that was the moment I changed from ballet to musical. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. And so you start in South Africa's first production of Cats. What was that like? Was that the full transition then from ballet to music theatre? No. So there were there had been a lot more. I, I did a lot of theatre when I was growing up. Like I was that kid at school that was never there. I was like, where's Femme? She's in some show. And I, I was a <laughs> presenter on television and um, I presented like a little magazine show for kids, you know, like today we're going kite flying and then we'd interview some kite flyers and, and things. It was a show called Zap Mag. The moment where I realised I wanted to sing and I wanted to act and I wanted to dance that I, I, I transitioned over. Cats came when sanctions were lifted, trade sanctions were lifted in South Africa and 
it was the first ever international musical to come to South Africa. At that point, we were not wow. allowed, yeah, we were not allowed to trade with the rest of the world. I grew up on musicals where the rights had run out. Those are the only musicals allowed. And then Cats came and they, it was the first time they did a colorblind audition. So you could be white, black, colored, who knew? And the these people from Broadway arrived and took us through our paces. <laughs> And it was just incredible. It was just incredible. It was the first one. And, of course, because the South African Rand is so um, worth hardly anything against the U.S. dollar and the Australian dollar, we were the touring company. So I ended up touring around the world in cats. I was Jenny and Dot's tap dancing cat, the chubby tap dancing cat. <laughs> Rubbish. <laughs> You then moved to London performing in the West End with roles such as Tracy Turnblad in Hairspray, Liza Minnelli from The Boy from Oz, performing in shows such as Fame and Footloose. What was that time in your life like? That is a very tumultuous time. It was a time that had come out of bursting out of South Africa's music scene, out of South Africa's musical theatre scene, where I suddenly realised that I could, I too could have a chunk of the rest of the world. Up to this point, we were only allowed to be in South Africa and cats happened and I toured the world and I got to see what was out there and I just, I wanted in. And I probably wouldn't have done what I did then, knowing what I know now. I went in just completely chest open, here I am. I went in with the bravado of 72 Tomcats. I did not go in with my CV prepared. I did not go in with all the nuances that you need. And I just went in and my I gate crashed my first audition and I sat there for almost nine hours that day waiting for them to see me. And they said, you don't have a time. It's not an open audition. And I said, just let me sing. Just give me 30 seconds, Eight, you know, 32 bars. Just give me 32 bars. And eventually they caved. They were like, all right, get in there and sing. And I think I gave myself hemorrhoids. I sang so hard. Um, and I came out. They were like, can you dance? I was like, yes, I can. And they would come back for the dance call tomorrow. And that was my first show on the West End. And I, no, I don't think I would do that now without the confidence of ignorance. The ignorance <laughs> gave me the confidence to do that. And I, I just had the best time. But you knew you could do it. You'd already proved yourself with cats and your work in South Africa. But I think this is a big thing that comes up again and again and again, is we wait for protocol. We are told that you need to have your CV and you need to get an agent and that agent will then get you an audition. And I didn't know that. And because I didn't know that, I didn't wait for permission. I just went in guns blazing and I feel like I need to remember that I'm capable of that in whatever I do. Sometimes I wait for permission here in Australia. I wait for someone to tell me that I'm the right person for that part or that role or that gig or that concert as opposed to telling that person, hey, I'm great. I'm good at what I do. This is what I do. Here I am. I think we can be. I can be reminded of that more. Where do you think that confidence came from? How did you have that initial self-belief? I think ignorance was a big part of it. 
I didn't have much of a mentor in any person in any specific person going this is what you do if you want to have a career on the West End now that's what you know there's blogs and there's access to we have access to everything now so I wonder if having a heap of information about stuff can often make us feel less worthy interesting um but I also know my worth I know how hard I work at things and I know what I can do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's parenting. I think that's my mum and dad allowing me to discover what I'm good at and probably a heap of, yes, my darling, you're brilliant at that and believing that that I am brilliant at that. But a lot of the time I don't think I can do something and I just go ahead and do it and, and then I can. And that also brings in a big thing of imposter syndrome which I may not be qualified for it, but I can do it. So am I an imposter? That, I think that that's a double-edged sword on all of that confidence. Mm-hmm. And I think it comes down to what kind of a meal I had last night. You know, if I'm well-rested, if my mental health is feeling great, and if I have good nutrition in my life, and literally those silly things that we think of as, you know, wellness, hashtag wellness. <laughs> if I'm feeling really good about myself, my God, I, <laughs> I have a feeling really good about myself. I'm unstoppable. So when you think back on your time in the West End, are there any specific career highlight moments? What was your favorite role, favorite venue? Hmm. Um, I'm going to use my musical theater career as a whole for that little arc. I was cast very young as Audrey in Little Shop of Horrors back home in South Africa. And I was 19. It was really young to tackle a lead role and to be a leading lady within a company because there's so many responsibilities that come with that leading role. It's eight shows a week. It's the company looks up to you. You know, you really have to step into those shoes of keeping morale going and, 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 Probably in retrospect, I was I was young, but I I I went in and I got cast in that, and that is probably a career highlight for me playing Audrey in Little Shop of Horrors uh, with the cast that I had uh, backing me as well. Um, that was an amazing role. Uh, Cats was a highlight for me, obviously because I got to tour the world. Um, and you won the F and B Vita Award for Best Female Lead in a Musical for both of those productions. <laughs> That's that's right. That's right. Um, and you know what? Accolades are super important. There's a there's that humble brag that we all pretend in the industry. You know, like oh, awards don't mean much, and and we do the we do the work for ourselves. But there's something about being acknowledged by your peers and by an industry that feeds back into that loop of creating more and giving more back. Yeah, it's feeling valued and acknowledged for your contribution. Yeah, I I, I worry about anyone who says, ah, I don't really care because we do care. We care enough to make the product in the first place. So therefore we care mm-hmm. how it's received. The West End was full of highs. I mean, you know, we can talk about hanging out in the toilets of the Groucho Club with, with famous people and, you know, like, my God, that's so-and-so. And then they, they turn to you and say, you know, there was kissed and danced in the loo next to me. And then she turns to me and she's like, I was at the show tonight. You were amazing. And I'm like, you're amazing. Um, that kind of a life. And, you know, you, your curtain comes down at 
10 past 10, you take your curtain call, you rush to your shower, and then you run out to Ronnie Scott's because someone extraordinary is playing there, Monty Alexander. I mean, my life was extraordinary until it wasn't. <laughs> until sustaining that amount of life is not possible. Not allowing yourself to have the lows and the highs. And I wish I knew more about navigating my brain and my mental health as I do now then. I feel like it should be, I feel like it should be part of every mm -hmm. arts course ever. There should be a module, each term, each everything about your mental health and keeping it going. Like we all talk about vocal health and and gig fit, but if your brain is not gig fit in whatever gig you're doing, I wish I wish I knew that because I probably pushed myself into places that I shouldn't have. And I and I had this massive breakdown in London. I lost my house, my partner and my job within a space of 24 hours. How did that happen? <laughs> it's I mean it's at the time, I, I I didn't see it happening until it happened. But looking back, of course, I saw the signs. You know, I all these sort of psychosomatic symptoms. I wasn't happy in the show that I was in. However, the show that I was in, I was in Hairspray, was one of the biggest hits coming out of Broadway, coming out of the West End. And how do you look at yourself and go, wow, I'm not happy living the dream? Because I don't think we were ever allowed to acknowledge that all that hard work and, you know, you go to the audition and you get the role and then like, this is, a, you know, opportunity of a lifetime. Mm. And so you, you never want to let an opportunity of a lifetime pass you by. Isn't that moving forward? Isn't that what we're trained to do, what we strive for? And I just wasn't happy in the opportunity of a lifetime. Well, it sounds like you're experiencing burnout and exhaustion. Absolutely. But we experience that quite a lot as performers and we push through. You know, we, we burn the candle at both ends. We have deadlines coming up and we're not sleeping. We're not doing things. That is the life. We thrive on that. However, I didn't know the difference between thriving on that and being eaten alive by it at the time. Now, now I do. And, I mean, I was seeing myself, you know, I would I would lose my voice just before the show started and someone else would have to go on and I'd go home and I would just sigh this huge relief. Oh, my God, I'm home. And my voice would come back. And so these things, obviously, I didn't want to be where I was, but I never allowed myself to feel that or, or, or go there until I just, I lost, I lost my shit. And I mean, I'm not, I'm not proud of it, but I lost my shit downstage center and I did everything I could to get fired. And I feel like we all need one of those in our lives. I feel like we all need something that makes us shift right out of there. And, you know, my folks popped me on a plane and I came here to Australia. My, my mum's Aussie, my dad's South African, and they were all here. And I probably stayed in bed for six months. Like I, I, properly had depression and and when people look at me they're like my god you're so bubbly and I felt like I had to keep that up and keep it going so it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me and probably the most horrifically heartbreaking thing that's ever happened to me wow it's really 
Incredible. And thank you so much for sharing that with us. You know, it's really shows your strength and it's very brave of you to talk so openly about what must have been such a difficult time for you, but also a massive learning opportunity and has enabled you to become even stronger and more resilient. You didn't really continue working in music theatre from there. I stepped back. I I lost my confidence completely. I felt like I didn't belong in the industry. I felt like the industry was too much for me all of a sudden. I didn't have a place in it. I, What could I do? How could I come out of, of, of that slump until you just put that one foot in front of the other and you get back on stage? But from that, it did bring out the jazz side of things because I was back in Australia with my with my pops, with Howard, with my brother, and they were like, just come to the gig and, and and sing a song with us. And it was safe. I was safe with them and I was safe. There was no prying eyes. There was no 2,000 people in, a, in an audience going, is she going to be amazing? No one knew who I was here and I could start again. And I did. And I'm just so bloody thrilled that I did. <laughs> and I did it quite I did it quite late. I did it in my 30s. You know, I came here to Australia um, when I turned 30. And to start a new career in a new country is brave. That's very brave. It just also sounds like that culture within the music theatre community, it's really challenging and difficult for performers. I've always noticed on audition boards and production requirements you know you have to be a certain height you have to be a certain weight you have to fit certain costumes I mean how did you navigate around that audition process and how did you process criticism constructive or otherwise I'm not great with criticism I'm just gonna I'm just gonna put my hand up and say I'm not great with criticism perhaps because I have such a vivid idea of how things could be that if someone does criticize me about the way that I look, I'm like, that, that, that shouldn't even pay into anything. Like, am I great? Am I, am I bringing joy? Am I changing? Am I moving an industry forward? What I look like should not have anything to do with it. And so I'm not great at hearing that I perhaps didn't look right or wasn't wearing the right thing or, you know, wasn't pretty enough. Or, and you'd think that we are not in that world anymore, but we very much are. I find it very difficult to find alternative versions of beauty on social media. I try and follow as diverse as I can, but it always is an advert for someone with an impossible body. And I'm like, oh, that's that's where we're at. So even now in a world where I think by the hour and by the minute we are moving forward, uh, I'm still not great with criticism when it comes to that. Um, it's hard. It's hard to take criticism. And I think we should, we should know how to take criticism as kids more somehow, you know, that like, yeah, we're all winners. We're not because, (laughs) um, because sometimes someone actually does win and then you feel terrible that you didn't win. And then, so, you know, if you're a kid and you're winning all the time, but you're not winning, you know, (laughs) criticism, Mm. it's tough. And I think, it can it can ruin an artist as well. I see it. I see it often. And when people ask me, you know, what do you think about this? I have to really tread carefully because imagine if we spoke our mind. <laughs> I remember you telling me also about 
music theatre auditions, how it's changed over the years and now they're looking at how many social media followers you have before you even get an audition. Yeah. So that is a big thing and it's the world through uh, in South Africa, here in Australia and obviously West End and, and Broadway. They won't even see you for the role if you do not have 10,000 followers and up. They will absolutely say, we'd love to see people for this role and they need to have this many followers. Like, come on. And what's happening from that is you're getting social media stars and reality stars that can't handle eight shows a week. Like they haven't got the, the gig fit chops to pull out eight shows a week. So they're going on opening night and ruining their voices and then a musical theatre person who is trained is stepping up. Mm -hmm. And what a slap in the face to the person that has spent their entire life crafting their technique and stamina. It also just puts a different focus on the artists that they need to be focused more on branding and creating social media content to gain followers as opposed to being in a studio working on their dance technique. It's completely different roles. Aren't we there with everything? Yeah, with social media, absolutely. Getting booked for a festival, getting airplay. If someone's going to write a story in a newspaper about you, how many followers do you have? Sure. And I feel like Australia is an extraordinary place to be an independent artist. And what I say is independent as in you aren't signed to a label, you don't have 100,000 followers, but you can still get a gig. But I'm seeing less and less of that. I certainly feel that I may get overlooked for certain things because I don't have a huge following or perhaps it's the jack-of-all-trades following. My musical theatre following is not going to come to the jazz gig. The jazz gig people are not going to come to, you know, all of these different things. And I think that is a real obstacle for a lot of us artists out there. And does this tie in particularly to females? Do we need to present a certain image out there on social media to get followers that's not just our craft? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I see a lot of my musicians with an extraordinary photo and that then becomes what they, that then becomes their image. And I look at that and I'm like, but that's not you. When I come and see you, you're this and you're, you know, you're amazing on that. And, and do we, is the sheen of social media clouding the actual work? I just feel like it's a false economy as well. I've got some artist friends that have, you know, 20,000 followers. It doesn't necessarily convert to ticket sales or album sales. The yeah. people who are following them for the selfies and these glamorous images aren't necessarily music fans, but yet there seems to be this industry pressure that we need to show numbers. Yeah, and I think also it comes from... If someone important, and please read famous into important, if someone famous and important says you're great, then everyone thinks you're great. And on social media, if 20,000 people think you're great, it only exists on social media. Those people don't think you're great have they all come to a gig I don't know has it just been the giveaway that you've done that like it's 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 extraordinary that that is the currency but speaking of fans I remember once you telling me about some of your super fans and in particular fans that would come to some of your shows hang around stage door maybe deliver extravagant gifts stage door 
legends as they are known. <laughs> it's an amazing world. So uh, London West End, I didn't know about. So, so stay, every stage door has a stage door um, guy or gal who is amazing at our stage door. We had Harry at the Shaftesbury Theatre, and I think Harry had worked at the Shaftesbury for nearly 60 years, I think. He would welcome you every day. Morning, fam. Actually, we were never there in the morning. Who am I kidding? Afternoon, <laughs> fam. He would know every name of everyone in the cast, and he would sort of field the fans after the show, and you'd sort of come out of the show, and they'd be screaming people wanting your autograph which is just amazing and makes you feel like you are a rock star and some of the people would take a photo with you and this is back this is back when we had photos developed and they would take a photo with you someone would take a photo and there you'd be you know like makeup half smushed down your <laughs> eye you'd have had your hair in a wig the whole night and you'd you know be sticking up and then you'd you'd be smiling and you'd take a photo and then they would go back to they, a lot of them were from the north of England, middle England, and and then they would come back the following weekend to see the show again and they would bring that photo and you would sign the photo and then they would take <laughs> another photo that day and then they would get that one. And so I feel like over a period of a year that you would be doing the show, you'd have nearly 52 photos of you and this amazing person who just was so moved by the show that they wanted photos all the time and I was blown away by that like who is that that's amazing and then I once got given a car <laughs> I once got given a car I mean it was it was started with flowers there were a lot of flowers a lot of cards thank you so much your performance moves me incredible and then then came like bigger things like I think it was um do you remember mp3 players like yes, a yeah. mp3 player and I was like whoa this is this is crazy and then the set of car keys arrived at stage door <laughs> and I was like, well, what do you mean and there was a car outside and I literally had to have that moment of I can't take it because I really want it why do I want it? You shouldn't have the, you know, these are the questions that happen on movies. Mm -hmm. Take the car. What does that mean? You know, <laughs> how much do you owe them? You know. Yeah. What are they expecting in return? Exactly. But I wanted the car. Chelsea, I wanted the car. I mean, and how I'd, fabulous. I'd worked so hard as a performer for the car. But then I was like, you can't, you can't have the, everyone said you can't have the car. So I, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't, and I didn't, it didn't take the car. You didn't accept the car. I didn't accept the car. Um, they were furious. No, they weren't furious. They were just, um, it petered out after that. I really lost, I lost their love after, <laughs> after the car debacle. <laughs> There's nothing more awesome than feeling like a rock star being given a car, said no one ever. <laughs> That's amazing. Something we've never, ever talked about but is on the internet is your role as Dora, the henchwoman slash helicopter pilot in the film Mr Bones, which was the highest grossing film in South Africa until its sequel was released, which surpassed its box office and then remained the highest grossing film until Titanic. Why have we never talked about this? Now's my time <laughs> on the big screen. Um, Can you fly a helicopter? No, 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 absolutely can't fly a helicopter. 
uh, I had to dye my hair blonde for the role. I was I was completely blonde, and I got shat on by an elephant. <laughs> In fact, I it is a great movie. Uh, Leon Schuster is the is the artist who made it, and he's very famous for. I think Australia has a version of like Candid Camera. Um, mm-hmm. He would he would stage. Uh, practical jokes and and people would react and they would film those reactions and he then had written this um, movie called Mr Bones and I got the role of Dora the helicopter pilot she was German in the uh, original casting so there was German accent and I was <laughs> I was blonde and I was the baddie's sidekick like I was the that chick you know the baddie would be like go and make sure that person doesn't and it's a comedy i mean it is absolute comedy and slapstick oh complete real slapstick. slapstick i mean if you're looking for internal character lines and things this is not your movie it is <laughs> it's a screen and it's great to watch with the kids um and yeah i get actually i mean i don't actually get shot on by an elephant but uh yeah i i it's a, it's a, th- in fact, it's worth a watch. I need to come round. I'm bringing the popcorn. I'm bringing the uh, Chardonnay. <laughs> We're going to watch Mr. Bones. <laughs> that sounds incredible. Once this lockdown is over, it's a plan. So we sort of touched on it a little bit before, but you wrapped up your time in London. You moved to Melbourne and you became immersed in the Australian jazz scene and have since performed at major festivals such as Melbourne International Jazz Festival, venues such as Melbourne Recital Centre. You've put out two solo records, including Now Then, which was nominated for Jazz Album of the Year at the Age Music Victoria Awards. I really wanted to talk about this record because it was a super ambitious project and I think it's the only live video jazz album I've ever seen. So you performed every single track on the album to camera, one take. Yeah. I mean, if we're going to do something, let's do it so it's almost impossible, shall we? Let's go big, <laughs> go big, go home. Um, it had just come out of my sojourn on The Voice, which in itself was something I thought I would never do. But I was sitting on the couch and I turned to Casey, my other half, and I said, this is the currency. This is what people are paying with. People are paying with exposure. We have no places anymore on television for variety. Mm-hmm. There is no place for anyone to actually perform on television and get their stuff out there. So I said, well, let me let me audition. I'm going to scat in my audition too. Let's see what happens. Off I go. And bloody got to the top 20, scatting away. They were like, what is that? I mean, so the coaches weren't like that but uh, lots of tweets was I don't really know what that was but it was great <laughs> and all the shooby dooness so I just finished on The Voice and Postmodern Jukebox the style of Postmodern Jukebox uh, Scott Bradley had just was just coming to the fore and I sort of felt like I was primed to bring a little bit of jazz to people who would not necessarily ever listen to jazz Jazz is a very niche genre, as we all know, and it can sometimes sit on a shelf and get dusty with jazz standards and with looking back into the past and where it was. And for those people that don't enjoy going to a jazz club and perhaps listening to the new sounds of where it's at, I thought, let me let me get you. And so I roped in my mate and the amazing John Foreman 
And I said to him, come on, let's do a jazz album. He was like, I need to get my chops up. And then he played me something. I was like, your chops are fine. And he came on board as musical director. And I really wanted to tap into everything that was available to me. So my time on The Voice, um, the visual aspect of performing, which is what I love, working live with musicians and that danger in a recording studio of singing live. Not necessarily all the tracks that are out there on the album are my best takes, but they're our best takes. And that's quite a, a quite a thing. You know, not, I didn't drop in any, there was no overdubbing, there was no nothing. And it was pretty amazing to do and frightening, but I loved it. And the repertoire, tell us a little bit about the tracks on the album. Yeah, so I took pop songs and I turned them into jazz genre. Some of them inspired by and some of them very authentic. Uh, you know, we've got uh, all the single ladies done as a little Gene Krupa kind of style thing. We've got uh, moves, moves like Jagger done in a little bosser <laughs> kind of a thing. Uh and eventually it ends up with Bob Marley's war done with vocals, tap and trombone. And this is one of the things that I feel quite strongly about when you ask me who I am as an artist. All of the things that I learnt at Performing Arts Workshop when I was a kid are who I am. That thing that you have to focus in and not draw from I have a musical theatre sound in my voice because I've spent time on the musical theatre stage and how lovely that that can come and travel with me in my jazz and how lovely that I have a rhythmical disposition because of tap dancing as a kid, um, you know, and all of those things in, infused into jazz have been criticised as a jack of all trades, a master of none, and I disagree. Oh, I completely disagree with that. I think the things that you are great at in life come into the things that you're great at in life. Let's talk a little bit more about jazz because I've heard you say that jazz is part of your blueprint. What do you mean by that? I grew up listening to jazz. My, my father's a jazz pianist, Howard. I grew up singing jazz um, in clubs and it's the one art form that kept coming back for me. The whole way through ballet, getting up in the morning, doing all those classes, stretching, doing things. There would always be like, oh, let's go to the jazz club. Even musical theatre, I would always find my way hanging out with the musicians in the band and going to clubs with them and sitting in. And just the language of sitting in with a stranger and making music is, is literally in my blueprint. I just know how to do that anywhere in the world. I remember going, I remember getting to Shanghai and we were in, at the big theater and someone said there's a the cotton club you should go and I, I went and no one spoke English and no one spoke I of course I didn't speak any of the local language and I went and I and I went up to them and I went you know uh, I learned the word for singer and and I said to them I, yeah can we do this and and they the minute they spoke about uh the jazz standards they had American accents they were like oh all the things you are I was like oh great yeah I thought you know there was a thumbs up and it is in my nature to just get involved. And I feel like it's a very jazz sentiment. Just get stuck in. Can I be part of it? How can I be part of that? How can I 
join in. Kelly Santon said to me once, jazz is a mindset, not a genre. Ah, I love that. Yeah, would you agree with that? Totally. Do you think that's why we all revolt, like we all understand each other? We get, you know, you go for a hang at a club after Melbourne International Jazz Festival and there's just jazz musicians everywhere and everyone just gets it. Everyone just knows what kind of headspace everyone's in and everyone knows Mm -hmm. that if someone started to, uh, you know, to play something, everyone could possibly join in together. Hopefully they wouldn't. (laughs) (laughs) Your portfolio, it is incredibly diverse. I've seen you as a session musician playing violin for other artists, as a leading lady in music theatre productions, emceeing events, being a radio host, filling in for presenters on PBS, directing, performing in your own cabaret shows, putting on jazz gigs. I've seen you dancing and singing with the Public Opinion Afro Orchestra. I've always known you for going from one project to the next to the next without pausing. So how have you been going through the COVID-19 pandemic, which is probably the biggest pause ever in your career? If you had asked me this question six months into the pandemic, I would have been like, this is amazing. I loved it. I loved stopping. I loved that everyone else stopped because my competitive edge disappeared. I didn't have to worry about what someone else was doing. Was I missing an opportunity? What's going on? We all stopped. (laughs) No more FOMO. No more FOMO. That's right. And it was great. And then, then we were out again. Then we were back in again. And oh, what a roller coaster, hey? The corona coaster. I don't believe the ideas stopped. I believe the platform stopped. So before I knew exactly what I needed, if I wanted to do a jazz gig, I knew how to do that. If I wanted to do a cabaret, I knew how to do that. And we were just doing those things. And then the platform mm-hmm. for that stopped. So we pivoted online and I was looking at what everyone else, what, what's everyone else doing? And then I hated the online format. I hated the streaming format. I still do. I still think we are trying to recreate a live thing and it doesn't work. It doesn't translate. It doesn't matter what happens. Even if you have a bit of applause programmed in, it, it doesn't work unless it's well filmed and sound is gorgeous. And uh, so, and then came the the live variety show, which I was like, yeah, that, that's that's better. But then it still wasn't. And I don't think the idea stopped. In fact, it, COVID bore one of my biggest ideas that I never thought I would ever do. I I said to my other half, Casey, I was like, come on, I don't need the man to tell me where and when I can sing. Let's find something. How do we do this? How do I take the music to the people? And I, I think we were halfway down a bottle of gin and I turned around and I was like, I am going to buy a ute and we're going to make the ute into a st-. And then about three weeks later, the bandwagon was born and we have. The bandwagon, yes. We have a vintage ute where we have modified the flat tray to become a stage that can literally pop up anywhere. And Casey has worked his little magic fingers to find a way of powering the bandwagon without a generator, completely silent. We can run a band for like five, six hours anywhere ever. Wow. Covidly safely. (laughs) 
I love that entrepreneurial spirit and it's an incredible project. It looks good. It sounds good. So tell us more about the bandwagon. You can pull it up anywhere on the street. How many artists can you fit on the back? So basically it's a live music delivery system. We've had to figure out our own pigeonhole because we don't fall into a drop-down menu. Like, are we a food truck? Yes, we're a food truck for music. <laughs> are we a busker station? Yeah, we're a busker station, but we're not asking for money. Are we a stage? Yes, but it doesn't look like a stage. So the aesthetic that I really wanted was that almost country sort of wood paneling pop-up feel. I didn't want it to feel like a stage. They've got these amazing stages that fold out and they actually become a proscenium arch. Um, I really wanted it to feel almost head-turning. Um, so from the footprint of a car park, we can drop a side down and we can have up to four people on the bandwagon. And if one of those four people is a drummer, they may have to only have a snare drum. But we have got this cool piano that we've gutted, a belling piano, and you can put a little keyboard in there and away we go. We have speakers. We are ready to rumble. Um, you know, I'm envisaging LED evenings. I'm envisaging pop-up jazz clubs in gin, you know, gardens and or curbside jazz sessions. Come on, it's it's endless. I'm so excited for our reemergence and a summer of bandwagon gigs. I've seen it in action once and it was like a pop-up block party from 100 years ago. It had this beautiful nostalgic feel and little kids and cyclists stopping and the absolute joy in people's faces just walking past to hear some live music and see artists. You know, this is what we need now more than ever is a little bit of joy back in our lives. So congratulations on this incredible project. Thanks, Jill. What's the process been like putting this together with your partner? Casey is the grounding that I need. I'm like, we will have a truck and it will be this thing <laughs> that has a thing on it. And he'll be like, okay, wait, we need to figure out what is possible and how this is going to make money. I'm like, it will be brilliant. So he knows me and I know him and the two of us work epically together. It's a really brilliant setup. I mean, he he lets me go mad and then I'm like, yes, I need more. I need the panels to be like this and this needs, and they'll go back to the shed and he'll tinker away and then he'll come back out. And I'm like, yes, that's exactly right. And he's like, so he, he gets my creativeness and he's the perfect human to have by your side when you want to put on something extraordinary because he will nut out the, the bits that I don't think about. Like, where is the actual vehicle access coming from? How do we get there? Where are we parking? I'm like, doesn't matter. <laughs> Hence his official title as technical director. That's right. That's right. He is the technical director. But he's also, we kind of need that because I get there and I'm wrangling musicians or and a lot of the time I'm not actually performing on it. Other people are performing on it. In fact, you were programmed on it before we went into lockdown 72.0. <laughs> yes. It's very much councils have been extraordinary with it. We're very well versed in knowing what they need, popping up at, you know, different uh, dining hubs, outdoor dining hubs. And, I mean, I'm hoping to get the wedding market happening. And I just 
hope that it would be something that could keep me going in between the creative projects. Something I've been asking a lot of guests on the Control podcast is about change. Is there anything you'd like to see changed in the Australian performing arts industry and the music industry more globally post-lockdown? Yes. And I think had you asked me this before COVID, I would have had a different something I would like to change. It's de- COVID has definitely opened my eyes to the rat race that we had going. Is it okay for $100 gigs to still be happening three, four times a week because no one's paying to come in to see Jeff? Like we need to foster audiences. We need to teach audiences how to appreciate live music, live performance. That's what happens in other countries. In the US, they celebrate live performance. They celebrate their artists, not only established artists, but they celebrate young emerging artists, not even young, let's take age out of it. They celebrate emerging artists at any age. Here, if you're past 30, it's done. There seems to be something that happens here. It's the tall poppy syndrome where in the live performing industry, we don't allow people of all walks to be celebrated. We say we do, but I don't believe it actually happens feet on the ground. So if COVID's taught us anything, what we had was not sustainable. It was not great for everyone. It was not a welcoming world for everyone for a certain few it was and instead of trying to go back to the way things were I would like to see things moving forward does that make sense in summary let's not try and go back to how it was before this happened let's use this big pause to make something new where we celebrate our artists I love that Femme Belling, thank you so much for joining me on the Control Podcast. Thanks, Charles. And can I say a lot of what I do is inspired and facilitated by meeting you. I know we as females often hang out together and things, and I know we've had our COVID walks, but <laughs> but certainly, uh, you know, PBS introducing me, you were the, one of the first people who said, come on my show, let's chat, let's, let's be your your support of your fellow female is quite something and quite incredible and you are a big part of um, of why I'm in the industry today as well. So I, I would like that to, I'd like you to know that. Oh, thanks, mate. Really appreciate it. And you have to edit, you have to edit that in. <laughs> so if you're listening okay. to this podcast, uh, and you're hearing this, you have to know that I told Chelsea to put that in FYI. Sure. Okay. <laughs> Lots of love. See you soon. That was the wonderful Femme Belling in control. Check out fembelling.com and the bandwagon on socials for more info. And speaking of socials, you can follow Control on Instagram and Facebook. And if you're enjoying the episodes, please do leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to find the series.
This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nations, with respects paid to elders past, present and emerging. This episode was produced by Chelsea Wilson. Until next time, stay kind. Chelsea Wilson signing off.